This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And MAGA Mike Johnson brought all of the congressional press corps to the border. We're back from vacation with an amazing show for you today. Josh Green talks to us about his latest book, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and the struggle for a new American politic. Then we'll talk to author Brad Meltzer about his latest in a series of children's books about ordinary people changing the world. His newest book is called I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But first, we have the host of the enemies list. The Lincoln Project's own Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rick Wilson. Hey, Molly, how are you? How was your new year? Oh, it was amazing. I just, my life is just one high to the next. But anyway, <laughs> enough of a sad story. <laughs> no, first, I think we should talk about the American media industrial complex, of which you and I are members. We are fucking up this election. Go. Look, I'm going to say there are three main groups fucking up this election. And those of us in the media enterprise, broadly speaking, um, some of us are fucking up this election. Let us start with the Associated Press. Well, I, I was just getting to that. As my friend Stuart Stevens said, <laughs> it's like saying Julia Child and Jeffrey Dahmer are both famous chefs with a different approach to ingredients. <laughs> the competition for the dumbest fucking headline of the universe this week, it was really up there. That one really, to me especially when I read it, uh, this frame of dislike of Joe Biden in the media is very clear now. Okay? Yeah. I get it. He's not exciting. But when you see an article 
article, like that AP article, that it's like, oh, well, one guy is against terrorist attacks on the Capitol that would overthrow our democracy, <laughs> but Republicans differ. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not how this works. And the thing that makes me so angry about it is there's a frame, and I, I've seen it now, I've started to notice it over and over and over again. It's former President Donald Trump did something outrageous, evil, cruel, and stupid today. Republicans <laughs> defended him. And then the other, and, and the flip of the frame is. But Joe Biden old. Hated ancient doddering fool President <laughs> Joe Biden, who is hated by all Americans with their hatred of him. Today announced record job reports. Republican economists speculate it won't be enough. <laughs> Come on. Just for people to know that we're not exaggerating, I'm going to actually read the AP headline that came into my email box yesterday morning and enraged me. One attack, two interpretations. Yeah. Biden and Trump both make January 6th riot a political rallying cry. And then it goes on with President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump now heading towards a pop potential 2020 rematch. Both are taking the same event in a very different way. The dueling narratives, I swear to God, I'm not even making this up. They are going to fucking both sides us into the grave. It gets even worse, though. Reflect how the Capitol attack is increasingly viewed differently along partisan lines and how Trump has bet the riot won't hurt his candidacy. Like, <laughs> there you go. Biden has repeatedly characterized Trump as a threat to democracy. I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can to the AP. There's a yoga move you might want to consider. It's called pulling your head out of your ass. <laughs> and I'm sorry. You know, there are great reporters at the AP, and I like a lot of them. And I know reporters don't write the headlines. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But they do write the first paragraph. But the framing of all of these goddamn stories keeps coming back to the essential message of, Yes, Trump is evil, horrible, terrible, but that's not anything more than a, a, a simple political divide. It's the usual left versus right. No, it's not. Right. It's right. an autocrat saying, I'm going to burn the fucking country down versus a solidly center left president in the great tradition of America. Now, I will tell you the other people who are fucking over this campaign on the Democratic side, they're Joe Biden's own staff. I know where you're going with this because you, you know where talk I'm a going. lot, but I'm not going to let you get there yet because I want to talk. I have That's another thing said. I want to talk about, <laughs> you psycho. I have another thing I want to talk about, which is I listen to The Daily. It's a podcast. Perhaps you've heard of it. Not as famous as this podcast, it. obviously. Now, only listened to by millions and millions of people, the New York Times, which we pick on because it's so famous and so many people read it. That's why we pick on you, not because we don't love you, but because you shape the news narrative in a way yep. that a lot of places wish they could, but don't. So mm -hmm. New York Times The Daily, run by uh, Michael Barbaro, a person I like very much, had very meals much. with him, yeah. delightful guy. Same here. I'm actually not going to criticize an episode he was on. It was an episode with Sabrina Tabernisi, Biden's 2020 playbook. So Reed Epstein and Sabrina oh, sure. Tabernisi. And in this episode, Reed Epstein is like, Biden is not powerful. Biden is a terrible campaigner. 
to say it is the most negative thing I've ever, they were like, he's not popular. People don't like him. He can't galvanize. He has no message. Yes, he says the economy is good, but people feel the economy is bad. So it doesn't matter. I mean, it was the most negative. And I was like, you know, I didn't even pick Biden, right? In 2015, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post that said he should drop out. I am hardly like Miss Biden Stan, but the reality is like, if we look at just the last years of Biden, he has way overperformed. Like, we don't even need to, like, suppose. We can just look at 2022, 2023, 2020, the primaries. When we founded the Lincoln Project in 2019 in December, Elizabeth Warren was leading Joe Biden by 26 points. And Bernie Sanders was ahead of Elizabeth Warren. And at the time, we were thinking, Oh my God, what the fuck are we going to do? And it turned out that Joe Biden was exactly the guy with the right message. He was exactly the guy who could beat Trump. And it turned out that he is the only candidate who has ever beaten Donald Trump, folks. The only one. Yeah. The idea that, that the critiques of the president are at this point going to change what's going on. There was somebody yesterday saying, well, you know, maybe he should drop out of the convention and then we could scramble the board. I'm like, scramble the board? Why don't you just roll out the fucking red carpet for Donald Trump if you scramble the board? None of that makes any sense. Did what happened in 2022 not happen? Because that was like 18 months ago. Yeah. And again, I, you and I've talked about this. I will never forget it. In January of 2022, Reed Galen and I are on this call with all these big Democratic activists and donors and operatives. I was not invited to this call, by the way. Yet another call or event or party or talk that I was not invited to, but it's all good. It's all good. Well, a very prominent Democrat said, well, we're going to make this election about prescription drug coverage and gas prices. And, you know, of course, because Reed and I are always like the skunks at the garden party. We're like, right. the fuck are at you talking you about? you were invited to the goddamn garden party. Party continues. Sorry, go on. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's crazy town. That's that's insane. What are you doing? It's about democracy. A year ago today, the cap, and this is again in early 22, a year ago, the Capitol was on fire. What yeah. is wrong with you? And Biden has an instinct right now that is the correct instinct. If you make the choice between going back to the past of Donald Trump, right. which involves all the insanity that people would like to forget about, all the madness that people would like to say, ah, that thing, eh, I guess we're done. Eh. You will get it tenfold, people. If you think COVID was handled badly, imagine <laughs> scaling that to the entire government for the next four years if you elect Donald Trump. And by the way, there's no guarantee that's four years. Like I always say, this is the, do you want to have elections election? This is the last election. Either it's the last election for Donald Trump or it's the last election for America. And I say that without trying to be dramatic or over the top. This is a consequential and existential election for this country. It is in part, we are amusing ourselves to death in the, in the yeah. media side of this. It's like, oh, it's so funny. Trump's so wild. Ha <laughs> ha. And it's just, it's it's madness. It does seem to me like the pundit industrial complex has gotten very far removed from the voters industrial complex. For example, 2022 midterms, our last mm -hmm. big election, God mm -hmm. forbid we talk about it, but it feels like we spend so much time prognosticating and so little time like looking back at things that just happened. So I want to go back there for a minute. Biden said 
you'll remember right before the election, he said he's going to give these speeches. Pundits laughed at him, made fun of him. They said the speeches weren't good. They said the speeches weren't working. They said people don't vote on democracy. They vote on the economy, which was teetering and inflation, which is a real problem, even though, again, and I, w- I want to say this because I feel like it doesn't get any credit, is the rest of the world is struggling with inflation at much, much more catastrophic levels, including the UK, Right. Mm -hmm. Which did with when we fucked up with Donald Trump, they fucked up with Brexit, which happened to actually be harder to reverse. But, you know, I do think there's a certain extent in which this really did happen. You know, the pundits were like Biden is wrong. And then Biden ultimately was right. Biden has something that a lot of people have have missed out on. And this is a guy who's been around the block. Yes, he is old. For a long, <laughs> like Moses. He knows how Washington works. He knows how the comings and goings of DC in governance and leadership work. And people who underestimate that and who, you know, it's like Tom Nichols always says, like people hate experts now in this country. And the cult of hating experts is a very powerful thing. But actually, Joe Biden's an expert in government. I say that in terms of the management of these things, of dealing with things as they happen, whether it's a pandemic or a foreign policy crisis. And and that experience is something that we have undervalued and undercounted in this country. And the desire for novelty, the desire to watch the car crash, this is like those YouTube videos of people wrecking their motorcycles into a wall or screwing up on a gymnastics move and breaking their neck. People watch that shit all day long. It doesn't make it good. And what, we, what we're seeing right now is, I think, an addiction to the novelty of Trump. And Trump knows it. He is the master of the political spectacle. And the press cannot resist dragging themselves over and over again. Like, like they, they're poking with a stick, like, do something crazy. Do something crazy. Do something crazy. Right. And they're always going to get something crazy. He's always going to do something crazy. I think there's a certain degree of selfishness and immaturity about how we're talking about this politically, because as I like, I'm going to say it again, this is a use it or lose it moment for American democracy. If we do not stop him, all the people bitching right now about, oh, I didn't get everything I wanted in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I, you notice I'm not letting you go down this road of You know complete, I'm going to, you, though. I, no, no, I'm not going to let you. So what's <laughs> happening here is that Rick and I know each other well enough that I know <laughs> he's going to go on this Carvel-style rant about how progressives need to get on board. And I'm going to tell you No, right I'm now, not talking about progressives, Molly. I'm talking about the entire democratic apparatus from top to bottom. Progressive moderate, centrist, traditionalist, Clintonites, Obama types, everybody needs to get on board with this guy. There is not going to be another fucking nominee for the Democratic president. There's not. It's Joe Biden. And the fact that people still are stabbing this guy in the back who work in the White House and the campaign, it is unbelievable. And it, in part, of, in part, I'm like, y'all deserve Trump if you keep this shit up. No, nobody deserves Trump. We're not going to say that. <laughs> and like, that is the thing, you know, now that we are here, people are allowed to be mad. You know, that's okay. I also think a really important thing is happening, which is that one of the things the Biden administration has been really good about is listening to people. Really good about listening to people. So when they've said, when they've said we want student debt, he's gone and tried different creative ways to cancel student debt, despite the fact that we have a Supreme Court that's very right wing, far to the right of the normal American human 
in the world. Sure. So, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, they want to ban abortion. They want to ban abortion pills. They want to bo- ban anything they don't like. They want to use the Comstock Act. I mean, they're basically the Heritage Foundation, if the Heritage Foundation were severely and terminally Christian in a way that is uh, profoundly religious and cultish. Okay, is that fair? When they're not having orgies. When we're not having orgies in Florida. (laughs) I am not an orgy goer or attender or viewer. Sure, sure. Often. (laughs) There was a bill apparently that even the Republican leadership in Florida in the House said no. Apparently one of these guys in the House said we want to acquire – data from apps about women's periods so we can monitor them. Mm-hmm. And the House leadership's like, no, you're not bringing that bill forward. Yeah. But the fact that that shit is out there, it's the Overton window, Molly. They're going to shove it and shove it and they're going to keep doing it because at this point, there is no like sanctity of life argument to be had here uh, on their part. I'm, I'm trying to give them even the most generous interpretation because now it's down to, little lady, I'm going to tell you how to use that vagina of yours. It is really getting to be very obvious and very ugly just how bad their attacks on women will be if they have full power. Yeah. And we're seeing it happen firsthand. And it really is just profoundly disturbing. I'm going to ask you now, this is going to be annoying to you, but it's something I've been wanting to ask you. (laughs) The polls. I talk to a lot of pollsters. They defend it. They say there are high quality polls, low quality polls. Rasputin, as I call them, Rasputin polls. Those guys suck and their polls are low quality, but they're also created to help Donald Trump. But there are also high quality polls, which people point them out to me to show me that polls are not always wrong and that this and that. But ultimately, all these polls are like a thousand people on the phone, right? Look, (laughs) I mean, it's all we have. So people are very attached to them. The the methodology hasn't changed, right? It has changed, actually. It's it's, it's changing radically. Now, look, the vast, 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 vast majority of polling in this country is hot garbage on top of a burning dumpster fire mountain filled with radioactive tires. It is terrible. It's terrible because back in the post-Obama 2008 era, we started thinking about how do you assess polls in aggregate. And we started assessing polls in aggregate. So you would have a low-quality Rasmussen poll and a high-quality Mason-Dixon poll or whatever, okay? Right. You add them all up and you do some mathematical jiggering on it and you would end up with a polling average. Real Clear Politics does one. New York Times does one. 538. All There are a lot of polling averages out there. The Republicans discovered, okay, I can go and form the XYZ Patriot Polling Company. I can do a poll, an online poll, or I can do a a robo-dial poll for pennies on the dollar. They do this to flood the zone and make the aggregate number of polls in the mix draw the numbers back to the framing they want, e.g. pro-Trump. So polling averages have been corrupted somewhat. There is an awful awful amount of people who want to have the interpretation of, you know, this 600 person poll gives you an accurate national picture down into the weeds of every single demographic. It does not. It simply does not. You've got to do things. It's the Depeche Mode rule. Everything counts in large amounts. So you've got to do really big surveys. You've got to dig dig deep into using surveys that are verified from the voter file. You have to weigh them appropriately. There are so many steps in getting it right that very few people, people actually, don't. Very few people actually take the time or spend the money to do it right. And right. look, and, and also, 
most reporters are not mathematicians or statisticians or really Except versed. For me. Well, obviously. <laughs> I mean, your work that got you the field medal back in the day was impressive. <laughs> That's right. Shut um, the fuck up. <laughs> but long story short, you know, we're we're in a we're at we're a time. A, yeah, we're in a we're we're in a moment where polling is dubious and questionable. Right. You have to do it in huge samples to get it right. You have to do it from the voter file and with So a lot of these polls are wrong and a lot of the averages are skewed. Yes, a lot of these polls are hot garbage. Yes. Here's the other thing. If you have one rule, folks, if you have follow one single rule about polling, there are three tiers of indicative nature of polling. The best tier are likely voters and the file is drawn from the voter file, okay? Not self-identified likely voters, but actual likely voters. We know people. We can see your voter record if you voted or not. We can't see the- How you voted, but we can see if you voted. How you voted. We can see if you voted or not, right? So likely voter polls from the voter file. Second tier is registered voters, okay? Then you're, you're much mushier. And the third tier is called all adults. Don't even look at an all adults poll. Just stop. Don't. And don't infer too much of any demographic group from any single poll unless it's an incredibly large sample inside the poll of that group. So you see a lot of these polls, by the way. So you have a thousand person poll, okay, right. nationally. And you go out and they'll say, well, you know, voters 18 to 30, they hate this or that. You're probably talking about 60 or 70 voters in that thousand person. Right, right, right. It is really hard for people to get the scale problem right when it comes down to that. So long story short, uh, they're, uh, they're a hot mess. They're, all, they're a hot mess. <laughs> we're we're in hell die. and we're all going to die. <laughs> Rick Wilson, don't do drugs. I do not ever. Stay in school. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> if the lady is from, what's it called, to ask you to join their orgy, say no. Never go to the Moms for Liberty orgy. That's right. Never go to the Moms for Liberty orgy. That should be the name of this episode. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Josh Green is a correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek and the author of The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and the struggle for a new American politic. Josh Green, welcome to Fast Politics. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. How do you go from the devil's bargain to this? Great question. So I spent 2015, 2016 um, embedded with Trump and Steve Bannon for the last book, which is all about the rise of right wing populism. But I actually kind of come out of the lefty policy world and had always been interested in kind of left wing populism. And so, you know, it occurred to me as I was looking for the next book and never wanting to go back into the kind of sewers of, of MAGA world that I've been reporting in that, you know, the financial crisis, which I think kind of produced the backlash that led to Trump, also produced this big backlash on the left that led to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC. And yet, because it hadn't put anybody in the White House yet, it hadn't really been written about and explored. And so that's what I wanted to do in this book. Yeah. I mean, they're the same, but not at all the same, though. The financial populism stuff is really interesting. Who did you think was sort of the leader in that? I think that the real leader in that, the real kind of historical figure, when people look back on the last 10, 15 years of politics on the Democratic side, they're going to look at Elizabeth Warren. Because when the financial crisis hit, she at the time was a fairly unknown Harvard professor who got appointed to oversee the bank bailouts after 2008 and turned this 
backwater oversight gig that had no real power or responsibility into a public platform to kind of push this brand of left-wing populism, economic populism that really hadn't existed in American politics in like 20 or 30 years. And I think she really sort of captured the dissatisfaction, the backlash that all sorts of people were feeling in the wake of a crisis where bankers got bailed out and folks on the middle class didn't. And, you know, it seems like a million years ago now, but it turned her into this almost instant celebrity. I mean, she was a pioneer in how she used YouTube and Twitter, which were new tools back then. You know, it led to a grassroots movement to kind of pull her into the 2016 presidential election. And only when she opted not to do that and kind of made way for Bernie Sanders did her star and her significance begin to dim a little bit. But I don't think that democratic politics would look anything like the way it does today. I don't think Joe Biden would be governing the way he's governing today if it hadn't been for Warren, Bernie, and then later on AOC. Mm, That's so interesting. You buy that? I don't know. I mean, it sounds good. It's true. I'm not arguing, but I just wonder, like, I think of Bernie as sort of the person who was there first and who had been preaching it the longest. I mean, I feel like Warren sort of made that kind of populism acceptable. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've been in Washington long enough that I remember Bernie Sanders back before he was Bernie Sanders. I used to work for the American Prospect and the Washington Monthly, which, you know, are kind of small Washington lefty policy magazines. And so I was super tuned in to Bernie and what he was saying back then. But the fact is, like almost nobody else was back then. They thought he was a kind of a gadfly like a weirdo. He, he just wasn't like the meme Bernie that he became once he started running for president. And I think that it took the financial crisis and the after effects, the austerity and the job loss and the stress and the anxiety for people to kind of wake up and be open to a message like an anti-Wall Street message and even an anti-establishment Democratic message because there really hadn't been one before. But then what he started sending started making sense. But I think Warren was really kind of the first celebrity. You know, she was the one that kind of broke through the popular culture. As I write in the book, you know, she became a regular on Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, was an important mechanism of communication. And then when she decided not to run in 2016, Bernie jumped in with, as you say, the same message he's been talking about for 30 years. Only the difference was this time Democrats were primed to hear it. And you can see that in the way that his campaign just took off like a rocket ship. No, I agree. And it's so funny to me as someone whose grandfather was basically Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Right. I mean, he was older, but he was a communist. He believed in, you know, he went to jail for the House on American Activities. I mean, he had all those same. So when I would watch Bernie, I would think like American people are going to elect a Jewish guy who basically has the exact same political. I mean, and that's not a criticism. I mean, I think my grandfather was in many ways ahead of his time, except when it came to Stalin. He had a real soft spot in his heart for Stalin. But I mean, I'm very stuck on the 2008 financial crisis because I watched it happen. I just couldn't believe that they were bailing out the banks and not the people. Like, I just was shocked. Well, to me, what you're getting at goes to sort of the context in which you're you're viewing Bernie. I mean, I viewed Bernie before 2008 the way a lot of people did as just not an important figure. But that context and in the context for a lot of Americans, I think, changed radically, not just in 2008, but in 2009 and 10 and 11 
as these years of austerity kept kind of dragging out. And, you know, it's not just for like college graduates who are graduating into a shitty economy and thought, you know what, Bernie speaking truth, I'm going to get with that guy. It was a lot of blue collar workers too. I was in, I was in uh, Aliquippa, Pennsylvania last week reporting on a story, basically like the iconic Pennsylvania steel town where the mill shut down in the eighties. And now they're building a new one. It's thanks partly to the infrastructure law, but I was talking to these old steel workers there who were like, yeah, we were all for Bernie in 2016 because we're union guys. Like he was the one speaking truth to power. Like he was calling out the bullshit on Wall Street. And so I, I think that that had a kind of appeal post 2008 that it might not have had 2008. I think I think the kind of the weirdness and like the grandpa look and all that actually added to his credibility because people are like, all right, this is not some slick politician putting on airs. This is like a crazy guy with white hair flying around. And like, you know, he's not going to get bought off the way that the other people will. I really do deeply, deeply feel terrible about asking this. But would Bernie have won? I don't know that he would have. And I, I tend to think, given how close the election wound up being, that he would not have won. Okay. But I think in a weird way, and I get at this at the end of the book, that he has nevertheless sort of succeeded in imprinting this like populist left agenda onto Joe Biden, who was a guy who could win a safe guy, an old guy, a moderate, not somebody who's going to like scare the bejesus out of Washington and not only got elected, but was able to like implement a lot of this stuff. Some of it in a bipartisan way. I talked to a, a top White House official, ex top White House official for the book who said to me, I will never say this on the record, but Joe Biden won the nomination, but Bernie and Warren really won the presidency. Like if you look at what Biden has done, especially in the wake of COVID, when it came to like the stimulus package, which differed like 180 degrees from the stimulus package after the great financial crisis, right? Biden put up a big stimulus, beefed up unemployment, eviction free, small business loans, you know, student debt relief, all that kind of stuff that didn't happen in 2008. It did happen when Biden got elected. And it only happened because this left populist movement had pushed over the intervening 12 years for it to happen. And people, even Joe Biden, who when I came to Washington in 2000, was still known as the senator from corporate America because he represented Delaware. Like the senator for corporate America is taking the Sanders and Warren agenda on economic populism, implementing it in the White House. You know, I think that's a great victory for for the left and even for Bernie Sanders. And I think that's one reason why you don't see Sanders anymore or Warren anymore out criticizing what Biden is doing or running against him in 2024. They're behind it. Right. No, no, it's a really good point. I mean, I have been on a panel where we've talked about how progressives are really supportive because they're getting their legislative wins. I mean, that's, you know, the net net there. They are. But the, the thing that blows my mind is you look at Biden's support in like this latest Monmouth poll and it's like cratering and not just with Republicans, independents, but Democrats. Like, I think that they don't realize what a success Biden has been in terms of implementing the policies, not just that he ran on, but that the progressive wing has been pushing all along. Yeah, yeah. It's true. They are. It, it is a real economic populist agenda. And I do think the reason Trump won was because he kept, you know, he would just offer people whatever they wanted. Right. I mean, totally. And, and back then he was an economic populist. I mean, it was rhetorical right. and it turned out to be bullshit. But if you go back to the 2016 campaign, he talked as much about Wall Street and globalists and all that kind of stuff as he did about immigrants. Right. Exactly. Like that stuff has power. Economic populism is the unifying thread. And, you know, I argue in the, in the rebels 
it's a unifying thread in democratic politics because it brings together not just moderates or liberals, but independents and even some of the Republicans, like the steelworker guys I was talking to, you know, that are also Trump guys. And so that's why, I don't know, I think if Biden is going to win and if he's going to overcome these poll numbers and turn around, he's got to go full populist. Right. These fucking polls are bullshit. And, uh, you know, a thousand people who pick up their their phone. I don't want to talk to those people because <laughs> I'm not picking up the phone if I don't recognize the number. Um, Let's talk about AOC. AOC was like captured the zeitgeist in 2018. I feel like she had that kind of news cycle where everyone got very excited about her. And then they sort of got mad at her for not being the celebrity they fantasized she was. And now she's been a bit quiet. Talk to me about the AOC trajectory. See, I think in a lot of ways, she's she's kind of one of the most interesting characters in the book, uh, partly generationally, because like if you look at her life story, which is in the book, she really is a product in a sense of the great financial crash. Like she was the college graduate that graduated into like a shitty economy and was working a bunch of service jobs. It was burnt by student debt. What was interesting about her and like her effect as a politician is, yeah, like she came in with a head of steam and occupied Nancy Pelosi's office. Like to me, that was the first thing that really gripped kind of the Washington press corps. It was like, holy shit. <laughs> like not only did she knock off Joe Crowley, who we all thought was going to be the next speaker, but like she's serious about it. She's occupying Pelosi's office. But I think what, what you saw happening over the next six months with AOC was, you know, she was in a new environment. She began to understand how Congress works and being an effective congressperson is completely different than being an effective activist. My first book, which nobody read, was a book I co-wrote with uh, Henry Waxman, the famous Democratic congressman who passed so much of the landmark legislation, shapes our world and the country today. And so many of those stories were about him quietly working behind the scene to like diffuse this critic or that critic. And I think to AOC's great credit, even if it pisses off people on Twitter or Blue Sky or whatever who don't think she's being pure enough. She adjusted to being a congresswoman in a way that has been like ridiculously effective. If you look at, again, going back to Biden's record, AOC was all about a Green New Deal and climate legislation. And lo and behold, Joe Biden winds up passing like the biggest climate bill in American history, 300 plus billion dollars. It just wasn't like packaged that way. And it wasn't delivered in a way that dunked on Republicans. And so I think for a lot of people who follow lefty politics on a kind of a surface level, it just didn't feel like a big win. And so they're not as excited about it as they should be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also think that, like, we don't really know how excited anyone is. And the thing that I keep coming back to and the why, you know, when I do I do this podcast, I interview a gazillion people a week, thank God. But, you know, the truth is there aren't that many people that I interview who are actually like out there talking to people. So, I mean, I had somebody on and she's talking to me about what it's like for poor women on the ground in Alabama. And there's a lot of America that we are just not, at least I am not engaging with on a regular basis. And so, you know, all we see are these like thousand phone calls, which maybe that is dispositive. It doesn't feel like it is. So who else in this book should we know about who's interesting and who's... The book is, it's, it's really about these three characters, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and AOC. But like what I've done or what I've, what I've tried to do is kind of smuggle in a history of the modern Democratic Party, like when it was that Wall Street first got its claws into Democrats because, you know, in the 60s and 70s, Democrats were the party of workers, were the party of unions. 
And then in beginning in 1978, which is sort of where the book starts, Jimmy Carter was having a terrible time with the economy, kind of Wall Street slid in a side door and reshaped the party, you know, giving rise to people like Bob Rubin. And all of a sudden you had Goldman Sachs executives who you know, not only ran the Republican Party, but now had important positions in the Democratic Party, too. And I think that helps explain why the party's values shifted in a way that ultimately wound up with the 2008 financial crisis. And that backstory helps to explain why people like Warren and Sanders are so important. Because in the 80s and 90s, like there really just wasn't a left populist wing of the Democratic Party. Democratic liberalism, you know, cared a lot about this stuff in the 40s and the 50s. But beginning in the 60s, Democrats were more focused on women's rights, civil rights, environmentalism. It took the crash in 2008 to kind of open up this new wing of the party that I actually think has been a great thing. Because I think, like I said, economic populism is the unifying thread in democratic politics. And it really has to be going forward because- you know, if we wind up with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee in 2024, Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee, then what we're really having is a referendum on whose version of populism does America want, the right or the left, Trump's or Biden's. That's what I think is so important. And I, I try and spend a lot of time out talking to normal Americans to get out of Washington whenever I can. But I would say this, like definitely what Biden has done is not connecting in a way that you would want it to if you're in the White House. But the other experience I have that might make me a little different than some of your guests, I work at Bloomberg, which is a financial news company. So I am like inundated with this stuff all day long. Talk to a lot of economists, talk to a lot of Wall Street people. And to me, there's this like crazy dissonance between what those people are saying and what the poll numbers are saying. Like the fact is Biden's response to the COVID crash worked brilliantly, especially if you compare it to the great financial crisis, right? And like, that's not just partisan spin. If you look at the actual economics numbers today, we have record low unemployment, we've got record high stock market, we've got falling inflation, falling gas prices, consumer sentiment is turning around. Like everything in the economic numbers says it's about to be morning in America again. The only thing it doesn't show it is Joe Biden's poll numbers. And like, Obviously, Biden's not getting credit. Will he get credit? I think he actually might. I mean, there's a delay effect with these things. We've got almost a year. But I mean, looking at these numbers, I know there's TikTok. I know there's a lot of doomerism, but it really does feel like a vibe shift is coming that is going to benefit Biden because all of the numbers that I see like at Bloomberg all day long are pointing in that direction. Even the crappy ones like mortgage rates and all the stuff that are like burdening, you know, younger people and people want to buy a house. Those are getting better, too. Will they be better enough to get Biden reelected? Yeah, we'll see. But I, I kind of think they might. Vibe shift, Biden, Joshua Green, I hope you come back. Anytime. I would love to. Thanks so much for having me. Brad Meltzer is the author of many, many books, including the latest Ordinary People Change the World. I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Brad. I'm so happy to be here. You're a new friend, but I really like you. And, you know, I hate Boston. So for me to make a friend in Boston, that's like a huge, a huge deal. I started writing in Boston, but I don't live there anymore. So don't worry, you can hate Boston all you want. I thought you guys lived there still. We moved from there years and years ago. So we are now like every other Jew and here in Florida. Wow. Oh, yikes. Trust me. Oh, you know. By the way, the best thing about living in Florida is that when you travel the country like on book tour, is everyone gives you that look of like there was just a death in the family and says, how is it there? (laughs) It's just fascinating. (laughs) 
So let's talk a little bit about this book. Yeah. So as you know, I usually write mysteries and thrillers and I do nonfiction like the Nazi conspiracy and write about World War II and things like that. And there's no better segue than Nazis and murder to saying I've been writing children's books for the past decade. And the truth was, Molly, is I had kids. And my kids were looking at reality TV show stars and people who are famous for being famous and thinking that that's a hero. And I was like, I got to do better than that. So we started writing a line of kids books. We did I Am Amelia Earhart, I Am Abraham Lincoln, I Am Rosa Parks. We've done over 30 books now. We've been doing it for 10 years. We've done everyone from Jane Goodall to Billie Jean King to you name it and in between, Jim Henson, Mr. Rogers. And now it's the 10-year anniversary and we're out with our 32nd book in the series and it's I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it's just a hell of a fist fight of a book. Tell me why. Because, you know, what, what our kids' books do, you know, they're books for little kids. You're like five years old to 12 years old. They're little cartoon versions of them. But what I do is I look for what my own kids need. And I have a daughter. The book asks the question, how do you create change? Because one of the hardest things to change is what the world thinks of you. And when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is growing up in Brooklyn, New York, which is where I actually grew up, she loved the things that all these kids like, roller skating, riding bikes, playing games like stoop ball. And she loved to read. But when she would read books, all the boys in the books she would read would be climbing trees and riding bikes and having adventures. And all the girls would sit around in pink dresses. And she's like, this makes no sense. Like, I'd rather be climbing trees than wearing a dress. It's her mother who saves her, takes her to the library. Every Friday afternoon, they pick out five books. And she loves, you know, everything from like Little Women and obvious things to like Greek mythology. But she loves reading the kind of books that I now write, writing uh, female heroes. She loves reading about Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman. And she loves reading about Jewish heroes, Takun Olam, you know, repairing the world. And her mother gives her this lesson is every year on her birthday, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a little girl, all true, used to go, her mother used to take her to the local Jewish orphanage and they give away ice cream to everyone. So she doesn't have her own party as a kid, which by the way, my kids would absolutely revolt. But her mother teaches her, listen, it's better to help other people and better to, you know, to deal with being a nice person, then that's how you really change the world. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she's 17 years old, her mother dies. But a mother gives her one of life's great lessons and it's, there's nothing a woman can accomplish. And that's where we go in the book. You know, our, the reason our books are, are become a fistfight for kids is I can tell my daughter, oh, you know, you could be a Supreme Court justice one day, but that's a ridiculous, you know, it's, it's like how many kids are going to really think, you know, it's like being president or, or who would even want the job these days. But knowing that you can make the world a better place by being kind to other people, knowing that, you know, having someone say to you, there's nothing that a girl can't do um, is valuable stuff. And the book ends with, to me, one of my favorite lines we've ever worked on. And it says, you know, today they call me a trailblazer because it's all written in first person. It says, but the best part of blazing a trail is leaving tracks. And that means you're not just doing things for yourself. You're leaving a path for others to follow. So start with one voice and let it grow into a chorus. And it says, I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg, create equality, create justice. And I love the fact that, you know, I want my daughter to get that lesson. I want my sons to get that lesson. And we now have 7 million people out there who have bought these books, who have built libraries of real heroes for their kids, for their grandkids, their nieces, their nephews. And I I love the fact we get to do that. What do you sort of think of for young girls? I mean, do you think the sense with with Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she was sort of a created an existence that we didn't even know could exist? 
I listen, I always test the books on my own kids. I didn't have kids to have a free focus group, but they will never stop giving me their opinions. And what they can understand and what every one of us, boy and girl, understands is someone telling you, you can't do that and just going, man, I want to do that, you know? And I know that sounds silly, but not everyone has, you know, the the family, the parents, the friends or whatever to, to let that happen. I, I think that's what books do. You know, I was someone who grew up, we didn't have many books in my house. Um, my mom's only thing she read was The Star and the Inquirer because she thought that's where all the real news was. But, you know, to me, there's a moment when you see Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the book where she goes to Harvard and to Columbia Law School, which is where I went to law school. And she said there were nine women, 500 men. There wasn't even a women's bathroom in the main building. And that's what kids understand, right? They understand that like basic stuff. There's a point where she goes to get a job and everyone says, you see this, you know, guy saying we don't hire women. Another guy says we don't hire Jews. Another says we don't hire mothers with kids because she had a kid at the time. Telling these stories, when you say things like, oh, she did this and then she was nominated here and then she, like kids don't care. They zone out. But seeing when she was a little kid, that she used to want to take woodworking and wood shopping when she was in school. But girls couldn't take wood shop. Girls had to take home ec. They had to do, you know, the cooking class and they had to do the sewing class. And she's like, what are you talking about? I hate this. I want to do the woodworking class. Kids understand that. You know, I mean, I remember my daughter, I had my daughter was was one of two girls on the Little League team that I coached, all boys. And I brought my daughter in and I was like, look out, we're coming to play. And my daughter looked around and was like, Dad, first she was the only girl, and then there was one other girl who joined. And I said, get your bat, get your glove, let's go. And, you know, it was important to me to just say that for some people in some situations, you don't have that advantage. And what to me is this book is just to remind people of their power. The crazy part is, Molly, is I researched these books and started writing them, you know, a year and a half ago. I don't know where the world's going to be. We just thought, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the number one hero that kids were writing to me and begging for a book about. Number one, bar nobody. And we've done obviously some of the big names, but she was number one. And so of course I included things about anti-Semitism, how she faced anti-Semitism when she was a little girl. She used to say that hatred's similar to injustice, that both are destructive fractures in our society we have to repair. And that's what our mother taught her, you know, repair those fractures. Don't just complain about them. Don't just bitch and moan about them, but repair the world. And I don't know where we're going to be with anti-Semitism a year and a half ago. And I think that's, I'll include this part because I think it's important for my kid, but man, we're still fighting this worse than ever right now. You know, she's she's a hero always, but boy, right now, she, it seems like, you know, when we look at what's happening with abortion rights, when we look at what's happening with anti-Semitism, when we look at what's happening with the way the country is divided, you know, she's someone who was confirmed with nearly 100% vote in the Senate. And uh, she's, to me, just a hero for perfectly where we are right now. I mean, she's also how we got where we are right now. But yes. I'm still mad at her for that. Listen, we've done, I am Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King spent two hours on the phone with me correcting her book. When we did I Am Jane Goodall, Jane Goodall read the book, gave us all the things. Temple Grandin book, got on the phone with me, spent time correcting everything. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of the few who I knew. I knew her a long time. Her daughter was one of my mentors in law school. I was a witness with, with Justice Ginsburg at a friend's wedding. We signed their ketubah together. And I'm still like, why didn't you just leave a little earlier? I love her adore, but of course that's where we are. So tell me the story of how you know my mom. This is a crazy story. So it must have been like 1997. The first year I become a writer. My first book is published. It's a thriller called The Tenth Justice. I'm at a Barnes and Noble. And this guy waits to the end of the line and he approaches me and hands me a little card, pre-printed, but it's really nice and it has a nice font on it. And it says, be a part of cinematic history. 
And it says the new Woody Allen movie is looking for special extras and you've been selected and we want you to be in this new Woody Allen movie. And my first thought is this is complete bullshit. This can't be real. Because yeah, when I used to work in the Senate Judiciary Committee, I was an intern. I used to take the Judiciary Committee stationery. I used to use the pen signing machine from the center. I write to my friends. I would tell them they were being deported. And, you know, I thought this is just someone, you know, payback on me. And I'm like, it's, it's got to be fake. So I call a buddy of mine who, who I, I know was doing legal work, supposedly for Woody Allen's film crew. And he says, no, this is real. Woody Allen personally picks out, he told me, his extras to all of his films. The new movie is called Celebrity. They want real celebrities in the movie, quote unquote celebrities in the movie. And they picked you because they're doing a book party scene and they want real authors in the background. So here I am, I'm 27 years old and I'm like, Woody Allen has just picked me. And again, this is pre-Woody Allen where he is today, of course. And and so I'm just like, I, I got to go down there. So I, I was living in DC at the time. I fly to New York and the other person that they pick is Lorenzo Carcaterra and they pick your mother. And your mom and Lorenzo and I spend two days as extras in, in the Woody Allen movie Celebrity. We're hanging out with Nona Ryder's there and Kenneth Brown is there. And, and they're not treating us like extras. They're letting, you know, they keep us inside. They take us, all the extras are outside and we're kind of inside. And, you know, we're talking to all the stars and we're talking to all the people. And we're watching, I've never been to a film in my life. And I'm like, this is the greatest. We are clearly the most important writers on the planet Earth right now that we've been selected personally by Woody Allen. So I'm sitting with your mom. We have these great two days together. And at the end of the two days, we finally say something along the lines of like, so how did you get the call to get here? You know, because we just started comparing notes. And the one thing we realize is that I signed on that Barnes and Noble where I got approached on like Tuesday. Lorenzo was there on Wednesday. Your mother was there on Thursday. Oh, no. It had nothing to do with anything <laughs> at all about us. We were the three schmucks in the right place at the right time. Whoever was in that Barnes and Noble that week got invited. And we were just like, oh my gosh, we were so self-important. And But your mom was super fun to hang out with. And that was literally the start of my career. That is a great story. And also such a great explainer of what it's like to be a writer, right? You think you're so special. And in fact, and also <laughs> what it's like to be a human. I mean, it was, it was the best lesson, right? It was like, it was like, it took all my ego and lifted it all up. Here I am. I've, I've been the, I'm the chosen one. It's been revealed. And then it was like, listen, schmuck, here's how, here, go back down the planet earth. And it was fantastic. But anyway, I, I know you and I have gone back and forth on Twitter and threads and everywhere else, but I was like, I always promised I would tell you it when we finally got on the on podcast together. It's a great story. Who's next? I am. Who's next? Yeah. So we just did Mr. Rogers, which is like, Mr. Rogers is the one you can't complain about. You know, we'll definitely take some complaints for every once in a while we'll get books. You know, we've had our, our Rosa Parks book and our, our Dr. King book were banned. That's insane. From what? In Pennsylvania. They had nothing to do with the content. There were about 100, 200 books that were selected as being good for talking to your kids about race. This is about a year and a half ago. And it was like the I Am books. It was Sonia Sotomayor's book. It was Malala's book. They were, you know, just kind of bread and butter. These were good books to, to teach your kids. And what the school board did is said, we want to read these books before we give them the kids and okay them, which to me is actually a fine thing. Go read the books, check them out and make sure they're, you know, whatever they are. But what the fast one that the school board pulled is that they took a year and the books still weren't read. You can read I Am Rosa Parks in 10 minutes. It's not like reading War and Peace. And basically what happened was, is they did it on purpose. They were, what, what started as this little freeze to hold the books became a ban because librarians couldn't get them. No one knew whether they could order them. And that's how they shut the books out without ever having to take a vote. It was such cheap politics. So I got a call from 
CNN, from MSNBC, even from Fox News called me and said, this is nonsense. Can you come and talk about it? And when, when CNN and Fox and MSNBC all agree, you know someone screwed up, right? Like it's one of the few right. times where you're like, this is, you know, even, even those three will agree. They asked me to speak at the special school board meeting. I, you know, it was heart of the pandemic. So I zoom in, I give my speech where I convinced again, I've saved democracy as we know it. And then all the students start speaking. And these students who start saying things like, you know, how dare you ban these books holding up our books and saying, you know, these are books that, that we care about. How dare you ban these books of people that look like me? Because every book on the list was either by someone who had a brown or black face or was, you know, written about someone who was. And these kids were so impassioned. By the time they were done, they completely re-voted. The school board had to take a vote right there. They shamed them into putting the books back on the shelves. And they saved the day. I had nothing to do with it. But we fought, you know, our Billie Jean King book just got selected in Florida, of course, in Florida. Um, and we, we fought against it. And, and it's now back on the shelves. It got unanimously voted back on the shelves. So that's what we're fighting now. So we still keep that fight going. We, we, I'm one of the people who's responsible for bringing Pen America to open a Florida office to fight these book bans because um, I use the money that we make on these books and I basically donate it to these places that will fight book bans like this. Um, so the next one that we're doing is um, in time for the Olympics, we wanted to do Jesse Owens. And I decided this again a year and a half ago, did not think we were still going to be fighting Nazis in 2024, but here we are still fighting Nazis. So Jesse Owens comes next. You know, we've done everyone from Frida Kahlo to Albert Einstein to, you know, anyone you can name in between. And it's been one of those things for me, that's my way of fighting back. I think, as you know, it's sometimes so hard to change adults' opinions, but give me some kids. And we now have 7 million kids who have read our books. And I love the fact that we're creating this little army of people who have values of perseverance and kindness and some compassion, because God knows we need it right now. Thank you so much, Brad. No, thank you for finally doing this. And, I'm, and you got to send my love to your family. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. And now your moment of fuckery. Hi, it's our moment of fuckery, and it's just me all alone because I forgot to ask Rick to do it. But also, more importantly, because I wanted to take a minute to thank you guys for listening. We had this break. It was probably the last break we're going to have before this election. I talked to a lot of people. I took a little trip. And a lot of you listen to this podcast, and I'm really, really, really grateful I think that we're doing really cool stuff, doing these local elections, trying to talk to people, trying to really get a sense of what's going on. And, and since we're back from vacation and I'm very introspective, I would like, instead of having a moment of fuckery today, to just thank you guys for listening. We work really hard on this podcast, Jesse and I, and we do a gazillion interviews every week. And it's really cool to know that you guys are listening. So thank you. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.